Rock journalist Michael Azarad is responsible for at least two books that are stone classics. His 1993 biography, Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana, published just months before Kurt Cobain's death, was a critical and commercial smash. Then in 2001 came Our Band Could Be Your Life, scenes from the American Indie Underground, 1981 to 1991. The book covers that seminal decade in rock music through profiles of icons like Mission of Burma, Black Flag, Sonic Youth, and Fugazi. Even if Beat Happening or Big Black don't rate in your universe, you'll devour every page. Michael is that good a writer. His most recent book is Rock Critic Law, 101 Unbreakable Rules for Writing About Music. It's a deadly accurate swipe at rock writing cliches. And if you're a fan of this podcast, I'm confident you will love this book. So please enjoy our chat with Michael Azarad on Rock Writ. Michael, I was reading an interview with you where you were asked about some of your writing influences, and you mm. cited Strunk and White and different folks from MTV News and Rolling Stone like Kurt Loder and Fred Goodman. And it struck me as a refreshingly kind of sincere and, I mean, this is a compliment, like a very unhip response. <laughs> uh, what would be the hip uh, <laughs> responses? I, I feel like anybody writing about this kind of music, underground, indie rock, feels compelled to mention Lester Bangs and that kind of school of gonzo rock criticism, even if their writing doesn't really re resemble it in any way, like his writing in, in tone or spirit, they feel compelled to, to mention these kinds of canonic, iconic rock writers. But, but you didn't, you, your models were quite mainstream writers. Yeah, um, you know, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, very few people I think write like, you know, Meltzer, uh, and Bangs and Coley and people like that. But that brings me to a distinction I love to make, which is the difference between influence and inspiration. You can be inspired by somebody to write, but that doesn't mean that you will write like them. It's just that you, you read them and you thought, wow, I want to do that too. But it's not necessarily that you wanted to do that like that person did it. So you can do write in a completely different way, but you were inspired by Lester Bangs to write. Uh, whereas influence means to me that what you do bears the mark of the stylistic mark of this person or persons that you're referring to. So may maybe some people were inspired by Lester Bangs, even if they were not influenced by him. Mm -hmm. Although I can't say I was really influenced or inspired by Lester Bangs. <laughs> uh, I guess, you know, I, I worked with Kurt Loder and he was just he was both an inspiration and an influence. I, he's a, just a, a, a beautiful prose stylist and he's an excellent reporter. Uh, yeah, he was, he was kind of a role model early on for me. Michael Gilmore, another wonderful writer. I mean, I, don't, I guess, well, I mean, in retrospect, Kurt and Michael are seen as mainstream, but at the, at the time, Rolling Stone was, you know, it's pretty cool and hip, at, believe it or mm -hmm. not, at one time. Kurt Loder later became, of course, the anchor of uh, MTV News. So, yeah, now he's perceived as mainstream. But, you know, in the 70s, you know, early 80s, he was he was a writer for Rolling Stone, among other things. And he was doing really, really good work. Fred Goodman is an, an incredible reporter. I also he was also my editor on a lot of Rolling Stone pieces. And, you know, he would really, you know, lean on me to go that extra mile of legwork for reporting. And he, you know, I remember also he said stylistically, he said, come on, you got to have a good lead. You don't want people to turn the page. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, and I took that to heart. And, you know, generally, Michael Shore, who was the editor at MTV News, also was a huge inspiration and influence, I think, on me uh, in terms of becoming a, a good reporter. I, and a lot of those times, you know, those people only had to say something to me once. <laughs> and it, I, I listened and I tried to incorporate it into my work forever after. So, yeah, a lot of these people I actually worked directly with. And I think that's a big reason why they inspired me. One of the ways I think your writing differs from Bangs and Meltzer and resembles some of the, the authors you mentioned is that it doesn't call attention to itself. You mentioned that uh, Kurt Loder has this kind of clean, clear, precise prose style, and yours is also elegant and clear, whereas Bangs and Meltzer are on the flashy side, large egos, larger than life personalities, and they take every opportunity to basically inject themselves into their writing. But that doesn't seem to be something of interest to you. No, I'm, I'm really old school that way. I'm an old school reporter. And you, you, know, you don't use the first person singular. To this day, I'm uncomfortable with it. Uh, although I'm working on something now that um, does incorporate first person singular quite often. So I'm just finally, you know, after many <laughs> many decades, a few decades of doing this. I'm finally, you know, coming around to doing that. So yeah, and and you know, Byron Coley, especially and Lester Banks, I, I could I find Richard Meltzer a little impenetrable myself. But <laughs> but but Lester Banks and Byron Coley, I love to read them. It's 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 entertaining as hell. Um it makes you uh hear the music in a new way, which I, I think is like the priority number one for reading about music in, in my in my book, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And um it's just just because I could never and probably would never write like them doesn't mean that I don't enjoy or appreciate what they do. And, you know, viva la difference, <laughs> you know? Um, I, I think it's great that there's a wide range of music writing. It just keeps, keeps things interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and oftentimes we find ourselves admiring greatly authors who can do things that we just can't do. We just have not developed those strengths and we've gone in different directions. But yes, uh, I, I wish, I wish I could write like Lester Bangs and, and decide not to, <laughs> you know, but uh, because it, it just didn't feel right. But I don't even have the capacity to do that. But I just write in my way because that's, I think that's the best mode I can work in. If I had another choice, I don't know, maybe I'd do it, but I, I think this is the right way for me. It's just what comes naturally to you. And, and those, you mentioned those formative influences on you when you're at Rolling Stone and, and the people you just came under, these things just happen providentially, right? And yeah, they develop, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it just seemed to work out all, it just fell together that way. And I'm, you know, that's okay. I've, I've had a good long career. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, looking back on that, you've been doing this for several decades now. Do you have more of an appreciation for the special qualities that you, Michael Azrad, bring to the table? I, I've never, I got to say, I've never thought about that. I, I just, I, I just do what I do and I bang it out and uh, come what may. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I don't have any objectivity about my stuff in that way. I, my objectivity is in editing myself. So the writing comes out as well as I can possibly make it. I don't have any other objectivity about what I do. <laughs> I, I'll, leave, I'll leave that to you. You've been pretty, uh, pretty, uh, articulate about it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it went, and I think it's something that's easier for somebody else to say who who may be looking at a bit more objectively. So I, I think you, when I think of you and your writing, I think strong storytelling and crystal clear writing style. Uh-huh. And story seems to be your strength. 
is, is this something that you're conscious of at all? Or, or have you tried to go in a particular direction? Have you seen like over the years, like, you know what, this is something I want to work on and grow in this area? You know, earlier in my career, I did try, you know, different avenues. You know, I tried record reviews and yeah, I think I did some okay ones, but that's not my strength. Um, I think, as you said, like it's, you know, I think my strength is storytelling, you know, narrative. And that's why I've, most of the stuff I've done is journalism or, you know, essays. And, you know, there's that uh, old saying that I, I'm pretty sure Martin Mull originated, which is that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think he said that mockingly. That said, I would love to see someone dance about architecture. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think it would be fantastic. I think you would be really interesting. And likewise, writing about music is is quite a feat. And I think it will I, you'll never be able to capture one capture one medium, you know, using another one. But you could try and the, the attempt I think can be really beautiful. And um, you know, some people do that really really beautifully and it's a pleasure to read to watch them, you know, try to dance about architecture. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, but that's that's not what I do. I, I guess I'm I'm basically a, a reporter, <laughs> so that's you know, and I try just you know tell the story as well as I possibly can. You'd consider yourself more of a rock journalist than a critic. Absolutely, yes, yeah. And people, you, you know, it's funny. Yeah, people sometimes introduce me, you know, as a, a rock critic, and I, I, you know, I always correct them. <laughs> <laughs> I always, think, you know, there's. Some people argue that criticism is a subset of journalism. Mm-hmm. I, I like to make a, the distinction. I, I think criticism is a, a separate beast. And uh, so, yeah, I consider myself a, primarily a music journalist. I think one maybe reason for the misunderstanding is you wrote a book on rock critic law, which highlights different 101 different rock cliches that uh, like stock jargon that people fall back on a lot. Yeah. And you mentioned being a careful editor of your own writing. Since writing that book, compiling it, do you find yourself becoming a more careful editor of your own writing, looking for those cliches and sniffing uh, them out? I was doing that for a long time. I, I think I think the last time I, I committed some rock cliche, rock critic cliches, or uh, I should say in the spirit of the book, the last time I think I obeyed uh, rock critic laws um, in any, you know, volume <laughs> was when I wrote Our Bank Could Be Your Life, which is a book about the North American uh, 80s indie rock scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, that came out, came out actually t- 20 years ago this year. I think ever since then, I, I've, I've been pretty careful about not uh, obeying any rock critic laws. But I've always been a, I think I spend about 20% of my time writing and 80% editing, going back over <laughs> what I wrote and tweaking it. I like to think I'm pretty cliche free, but um, then again, maybe every writer thinks that. And, uh, you know, maybe you could find some of my more recent writing that has some, you know, some clinkers in it. But uh, I, I do, I'm, I do try to avoid them. And, you know, that, that book, Rock Critic Law was, you know, that was the summation of, you know, <laughs> Like, I don't know, for over 40 years of reading rock writing and just sort of mentally noting some of the recurring uh, tropes that uh, I would see over and over for sometimes decades. Some of them, you know, some of them I committed myself, but most of them I, I, I never did, I think. 
I, I wonder, I was interviewing a Canadian uh, music writer and novelist, Sean Michaels, a few months ago, and we talked about how certain cliches are actually, he mentioned the, the angular guitars and spiky guitars. And, and we mm -hmm. talked about how these are actually like pretty good words that do capture a sound. It's just that through overuse, they've lost some of their potency. I, I wonder if there was like a moratorium that was issued on some like the best rock cliches. Uh, so five years, nobody uses spiky or angular in their writing. And then we bring it back into service when they can be fresh again. I think some of these <laughs> cliches are actually quite decent. Yeah, well, there's, a, you know, there's this kind of common wisdom that, you know, cliches are popular because they're true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, and there is a, a shorthand that one learns from after reading and or, and or writing uh, rock criticism in general, where the, the reader understands what the writer means when they say angular. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it taps into this whole, you know, underground root system <laughs> of associations and connotations. So when you say, you know, angular uh, guitar, someone who's been reading rock criticism knows like, oh, so that, that ties into like post-punk and probably maybe Wire and Gang of Four. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, you know, whole network of associations that that one word angular, you know, the angular guitar, the spiky guitar uh, will summon up. So, you know, they are effective that way. On, on the other hand, boy, it would be kind of cool if people maybe came up with different ways of, of saying that. Just because, you know, it's, it's a good mental exercise for the writer and the reader, <laughs> you know, instead of falling back on the same terms, this kind of lingua franca. I think it's certainly to have a more expansive vocabulary would bring in more people who are not into that conversation, who don't know that angular guitars signifies Gang of Four or I, I, some Chicago bands. Uh, it would certainly bring them into the conversation a bit and help them to understand. It's also, I feel like it's also possible to just develop a knack for speaking this language without writing from a place of musical intelligence or actually having an emotional response to the music. And I think experienced writers will know when they're just phoning it in. Yes. Uh, although, wow. You know, I think increasingly writers are so overworked and making so little money that they have to bang out a lot of writing and yeah, maybe their heart isn't in it. Sometimes you just got to bang out some, something and it maybe you even know it's, it's kind of hacky, but just don't have time to, to do it. Well, that's kind of a reality of today's, uh, uh, music writing uh, marketplace, for lack of a better word. That doesn't bode well for professional kind of pop rock music criticism, does it? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> no. I mean, you know, there are always uh, people, uh, you know, in the elite who, uh, <laughs> you know, make a, a nice living out of this still, and maybe they have some more time and, and uh, inspiration <laughs> to really um, put their heart and mind into what they're writing. But I really feel for people who are trying to make a go of this and just have to bang out a whole lot of stuff because the per word rate is so abysmal. I can only imagine. And if if somebody were to approach you today, Michael, like a young person said, I want to be a rock critic. Vocationally, this is this is what I want to pursue. What advice would you give them? What questions would you ask them? Are you independently wealthy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a or do you have a partner who can support you? <laughs> You know, I think those are two really important things. And, you know, and obviously, you know, do you really love this? You have yeah. to, you have to love it partially because um, uh, that will come through in your writing and partially because, you know, odds are you're not going to make a, a very good living at it. So 
you're going to have to derive your happiness from uh, the satisfaction of a job well done rather than a job well paid. It's funny, uh, maybe 10 years ago, I was on a, um, uh, a show on uh, WNYC, which is the uh, public radio station here in New York City. Uh, it's called Soundcheck, hosted by John Schaefer, who's a real uh, mainstay of, uh, of New York music. And the, the topic was uh, the internet and music writing. And I, I predict, this is 10 years ago, I predicted that the internet would lead to, and I use this word, a bloodbath in, in the profession. And there was, I had a colleague of mine who will remain nameless, was also uh, uh, calling in on the line. And I could hear them snickering, you know, scoffing at what I was saying. But I was right, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a, f- a few years later, I read in an article uh, in the Col- Columbia Journalism Review that, you know, about this, uh, this national decline in journalism jobs has coincided, you know, with, and I remember this phrase, a mass shuttering of music magazines. And, you know, I was right. Um, the internet really uh, decimated, you know, the livelihood of, a lot of music writers. And so it's, it's, you know, it's a tough gig. Are there worthwhile conversations happening about music these days? Where are they happening if they are? Mm. That's a really good question. Uh, I'd have to think about that. Um, I mean, there's some, there's certainly still, there's plenty of wonderful writing, you know, uh, everywhere, but you know, maybe the, maybe the, the great conversations are, well, they used to be, you know, at a show, you know, between two people, <laughs> Mm-hmm. What do you think of this band? Well, you know, and you know, you you'd have that. There's still that interpersonal conversation between two people who are not neither of whom are music critics. You know, I think that's the best conversation when you're just rapping about music to your friends, um, not professionally. That's the best. That's where I hear about all some of my favorite music. Uh, I don't really read about it. Well, I read about some music in the press for sure, but a lot of it I just hear from friends. A lot mm-hmm. of my friends happen to be musicians, so they're checking out their friends' music. They see a whole lot of shows, almost as many as I do. <laughs> so I, I get a lot of tips from musician friends. And I think that's, I don't know, I, that's always been my most satisfying musical dialogue uh, is with friends. Um, you know, I, I can, I certainly have gotten introduced to cool bands and cool music uh, from journalists and critics but I think I've probably found my favorite bands through friends. That's so interesting too. You mentioned how a lot of these friends are, are themselves musicians who are mm. tipping you off to, to other cool music. And I know you have an appreciation for musicians who speak eloquently about the work of other musicians. You were involved as editor-in-chief in TalkHouse, which, and that's one of the missions of that project. Do you think musicians are often more perceptive listeners? Not necessarily. I would think they, well, I mean, they would tend to be more perceptive. I don't think they're better. I think they're different. Mm -hmm. Different how? Well, musicians are listening for different things. They're listening uh, probably on a, on a more technical level, like, wow, you know, they, they use uh, the major seventh in a chorus a lot. That's interesting. (laughs) You know, listen, listen to the way the drummer rushes the fills just a little into the chorus. That's very exciting. Or, they must be, uh, they must have an interesting band dynamic to work out, you know, sharing songwriting. Although, you know, these kind of things that uh, a musician would, has great deep experience with and would notice and would care about and would appreciate, you know, the impact of, um, maybe someone who's never been in a band might not know or care about. It's always interesting to hear a musician's take on music. They have a, they, 
it's not a better angle, it's just different. Are there writers that you can think of from the last bunch of years who sort of embody those qualities as well that can bring out things that that the average listener or even the average critic is maybe liable to miss? Uh, you mean musician writers? Could be musician writers, could be just critics, other writers in general who, who may not be musicians. You know, it's so funny. The, the two that leapt to mind were musicians, and they're, they're both, um, for lack of a better word, jazz pianists. Oh, okay. Uh, Ethan Iverson, um, who huh. was, was in The Bad Plus, uh, is an excellent musician writer. Okay. I would read anything he has to say about, you know, any kind of music. Uh, yeah, he was in The Bad Plus. This uh, really cool jazz trio I recommend listening to. Uh, at least any of the uh, records that he made with them. Really cool. Awesome. Um, and then another uh, jazz, for, again, this, this word jazz, uh, you know, I know it's so loaded and complicated, but um, <laughs> but Vijay Iyer is also a really great writer. Okay. Um, that I mean, he's ridiculously talented in so many different disparate directions, but he's also a wonderful writer. So those are, uh, I don't know, those two just leapt to mind um, uh, in terms of, you know, having interesting uh, perceptions from a, especially from a musicianly angle, but also, you know, not neglecting the sheer, you know, uh, joy and jolt of uh, reacting uh, viscerally to music. Yeah. I'll have to check them out. Yeah. And just going back to growing up, what, what rock press did you read growing up, Michael? Were there fanzines or magazines that were formative for you? Well, uh, when I was a kid, I mean, and we're talking like, you know, like 10 years old, nine, 10 years old, even. Well, my father, one, I should just backtrack a little bit. One uh, day, my, my father came home with this record that he'd read about in Newsweek magazine uh, and was very hyped and you know, glowing praise and apparently was quite interesting. And it was called Sergeant Pepper. Never heard of it. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Must check uh, it out. You, you, yeah. It, I think you would, you might enjoy it. Um, I listened to it and I just commandeered it. You know, I just, huh. I just played it over and over <laughs> as little kids do. And after that, you know, and I realized um, I'm a rock person. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is, you know, part of a big part of who I am. I'm a rock person. And, um, and so I started buying this magazine called Hit Parader. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of pop and rock bands of the day, pretty lightweight stuff, but you know, about, you know, about at the limit of my, you know, nine, 10 year old uh, reading comprehension and everything else comprehension. And I, I would just tear through it. I just poured through it. And I remember there was this one thing, there's this interview with Keith Moon. He said something that has stuck with me to this day. And he, he said, it's, it's something about how playing rock, it comes from a, a place of, um, you know, intuition. And, you know, either you've got it or you don't. And he said, Give me a one-string mandolin, and I'll play you some rock and roll. Hmm. And I thought, wow, that like um, that's I, I I was just blown away by that. It's like a um, it's a sensibility is the word I was looking for. Yeah. It's a sensibility that either you got or you ain't, you know. And that's why Keith Moon, who couldn't play any other instrument, <laughs> I'm sure, could play you rock and roll on a one-string mandolin because he had that sensibility way deep in his you know DNA. And that, I don't know, that just really resonated with me. And I just never forgot that. I read that when I was, yeah, probably 10 years old. Um, I read Cream uh, a mm. little later. And then 
uh, I think one of my parents has subscribed to this book of the month club and I, you know, I got to choose a book and I chose this book called rock encyclopedia, huh? Uh, edited by a woman named Lillian Roxon, who is, Oh, a, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Australian, uh, critic journalist. I, you know, it was just a encyclopedia of rock bands of the, you know, late 60s, mid to late sixties. And I just read it cover to cover several times. <laughs> <laughs> You've memorized passages, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, One of those I, books. yeah. I may have, yeah. I, I did memorize it for a long time. I may have uh, lost some of it now, but uh, but that also made a huge impression on me. I did not want to write about music. I wanted to be in a band, and I was playing in bands, playing drums. Um, but uh, that also was just just gigantic for me. And then later on, you know, my teens, I started reading Rolling Stone, and. Um, and the village voice and uh, I don't know, probably some other uh, things like that. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that was kind of, I was just building up uh, the corpus and figuring out uh, what music I liked and what writing I liked. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it started with hit parader and then cream and, and then uh, the rock encyclopedia uh, that, yeah, that made a huge uh, dent on me. So I started investigating a lot of the music in that book and, one thing led to another. Were there any writers or magazines, publications that influenced your taste the most? Hmm. Or you feel like your sensibility was like shaped by? No, no. Cause I always just kind of, I, I think I had my taste and I just sort of sliced through whatever publications I was reading with that, you know, sensibility in mind. Again, you know, a lot of it was just, you know, my friends influencing me or, you know, or just, discovering stuff almost by accident or i don't know maybe the new york you know the new york times was huge for me hmm. um i i read a review of talking heads you know early on and television also and for my 16th birthday i got marquee moon and talking head 77 on the same day and that was a gigantic shift in my life that's a big day yeah, yeah huge i can't even describe how huge that was but also uh, a friend of mine my friend andy um, went away to London for a summer and worked in his cousin's uh, clothing shop called Boy. And there was a cashier there uh, named Don Letts who would make him mixtapes of uh, some of the bands who were playing around London and you know some reggae stuff and dub music. Uh, Andy came home from that summer with all these singles by bands with like kind of violent names like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Damned. Mm-hmm. Uh, X-ray specs and uh, Elvis Costello, and uh, he had all these posters and and buttons and and like I say, singles and stuff, and that also just uh, blew my mind. Again, life changing, pivotal moment. I was like, wow, punk rock. This is uh, <laughs> this is music by, for, and about me and my friends as opposed to Steely Dan and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, uh, <laughs> you know, um, or later Rolling Stones, all that stuff I was kind of listening to at the time. Wow. Mind blowing. Again, you know, friends. Did fanzines figure into the equation at all when you were growing up or in your teens or twenties? You know, they're really, it, it was pretty tough to find a fanzine, uh, you know, when I was a kid or in my teens mm-hmm. that came along, you know, to my mind, you know, after punk rock and really, in the 80s, I think, you know, the, the U.S. fanzine scene really kind of blew up. Uh, I, I guess I didn't have 
the wherewithal to even find out about fanzines, you know, in the, in the 70s. Um, I think there were, there were definitely fanzines at that time, but they were much less prevalent and the culture was far less pervasive than it became in the 80s. And I know you poured over fanzines researching for Our Band Could Be Your Life. Yeah. Are there qualities that you think set apart the writing in like motor booty and, and forced exposure from other rock journalism that you were exposed to? Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Motor booty that gosh, that was great. Grand Royal was an amazing fanzine that was kind of bankrolled by Beastie Boys, but you know, but I mean, Matter and Iron Coley's fanzine at fanzines, there was no, it, it was a much more circumscribed audience. So those writers could write directly for their peers. They weren't writing for a mass audience, so they weren't altering their voice. They were saying exactly how they felt. They weren't, you know, they're not pulling any punches. They, yeah, and they were not writing for a mass audience. They were writing about stuff that wasn't being hyped to them by their record labels. And so it was a completely different beast. And yeah, that's, that's incredibly refreshing as opposed to, um, you know, the mainstream music magazines, which were, you know, reflecting the, uh, you know, the marketing priorities of uh, mostly major labels. It's interesting. I mean, fanzine would seem to be like the best place to develop a unique voice because you're not beholden to passing trends or, or tight deadlines or ads. But it's interesting that that school of kind of underground rock criticism comes with its own set of laws. Mm. Like you, you'll see a lot of the same bands covered. You'll see, you know, YR for your words like fug and reads and lots of kind of frank talk about sex and drugs and cursing. It almost seems like there could be like a fanzine rock critic book, rock critic law book uh, as well that, that just captures some of the cliches coming from that culture too. Yeah. Perhaps you've heard the word shibboleth. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> you know, there, there are certain words that uh, grant you entry, you know, into exclusive clubs. Mm -hmm. all, all aspects of society use certain kinds of language to indicate, you know, belonging or, or, or wanting to belong. And there's all kinds of, you know, I call it cubicle speak, you know, in the business world, you know, people saying, I want to access this or, you know, I, I've sort of banished that, those, that, that kind of language from my mind, frankly. But there's all kinds of, you know, language in the business world that, that people use. There's language in uh, the coding world that people use. You know, you could do wine critic law, you know, to, people use certain words to show that they're, they're part of the in crowd, that they belong. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think that's just human nature. And to a certain degree, it's fine. And then after a while, it kind of just becomes uh, annoying or, or just lazy. I want to talk about our band could be your life. Uh, you mentioned it was the 20th anniversary of it. Here's one question that I saw on Twitter. Who would you include in a hypothetical 2001 to 2021 version of our band could be your life? I wouldn't write that book. You know, it's not like our band could be your life was a greatest hits, my favorite bands of the 80s. Mm -hmm. It was about a story. It was it was a story of a, a series of bands and labels and other uh, aspects of the musical community, like radio stations and record stores and fanzines, building a community from the ground up and overcoming tremendous obstacles to their own survival. And bands in the 2000 to current moment uh, time frame simply don't have that story. There's, uh, they just simply don't have the obstacle, obstacles that the bands in the 80s did. The bands in the 80s were building 
something out of almost nothing. And now there's, you know, all kinds of outlets for selling their music. There's all kinds of outlets for hearing their music, uh, you know, Spotify and, you know, streaming services, Tidal, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole, huge network of venues where they can play. Whereas, you know, you know, Black Flag, um, they had to walk 20 miles barefoot through the snow to play a show. <laughs> um, or, or they played the, you know, the Eagles Lodge or, or, or a pizza restaurant, you know, there's just, and there's no necessity for bands to do that anymore. So I, I think, uh, you know, to write a, you know, a 2000 to 2021 version of the book is, would be pointless. It would just be a, a greatest hits, you know. Uh, if you want to ask me what my favorite, you know, indie rock bands of that time period were, you know, I yeah, could off yeah. the list for you. <laughs> who are some people who are kind of representative in that period, do you think? Wow. Uh, TV on the radio, hmm. um, Deerhoof, yeah. Dirty Projectors, Grizzly Bear, Toon Yards, Sylvan Esso, uh, Fleet Foxes. Yeah. I don't know. I, I could go on. I'm sure I'm leaving out some. Um, yeah. I mean, early on, like the Rapture. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's kind of all over the place. I guess a lot of these bands are New York bands. Probably that's probably no coincidence. But there's a ton of other bands, you know, that are, <laughs> I get real off there. You know, I love dearly. Kind of a greatest hits thing. But and that's just you know the the indie rock thing. I mean, you know, I, I do listen to other kinds of music. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you got a lot of like, why did you leave this band out of our band could be your life? Right. But I feel like it was probably easier to compile a list of kind of the vital kind of representative bands there might be more sort of agreement and consensus on from from the period you wrote about but now in in an updated version from the last 20 years i feel like it would be all over the place and and you could have people who listen to like the same music but uh much less agreement much less overlap on those lists like i jotted down some stuff last time like i wonder who i put on my hypothetical list and these are not bands i necessarily love but i feel are representative so like mountain goats the hold steady lungfish death cab Arcade Fire, Low, Calexico, Super Chunk, maybe. Oh, yeah. Super. Ask, ask other people who listen to, you know, who are indie rock kinds of people. And we might land in so many different places. Yeah, because, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying. Um, you know, it's just, I think it, it's, I don't want to say it's easier to be in an indie rock band because it, it's really hard. <laughs> Certainly, uh, you know, it, uh, the work of the 80s, bands and then into the 90s uh and and all in the infrastructure around them like i say the fanzines the record stores the labels and everyone who pitched in to make that community happen uh you know laid so much groundwork for for the current day bands and it's still tough but at least the infrastructure has been built for them mm -hmm. so you know yeah there's this proliferation of bands and it's a fairly wide smattering of uh stylistic uh, approaches as opposed to in the 80s but with our band could be your life again I, I wasn't necessarily choosing my favorite bands i was choosing bands that represented you know a, a sound or a, a region mm -hmm. you know or an approach to uh to their uh the way they conducted themselves and so like i say it wasn't necessarily favorite bands it was bands who represented a progression starting at Black Flag in the early 80s and um, ending up at Beat Happening in the very early 90s. Uh, so, it's, you know, again, you know, you're saying, you know, I'm a storyteller. You know, there's a there's a, there are it, there are 13 bands in our band could be your life. And each band gets its own chapter. But there is an 
overarching narrative there you know those bands are put in that order for a reason yeah it tells the the, the stories tell a story in, in your interviews did it strike you the toll that the kind of lifestyles that these bands led and the dedication they had were you kind of struck by the toll that this had on them and i don't mean just like back then even today so a lot of these bands did heroic things that paved the way for for modern music and and we are the beneficiaries of that. But I wonder if some of them are still paying even today for the sacrifice, sacrifices that they made in pursuit of their arts many years ago. Um, I, I, hmm. Well, you know, I, I think virtually all of them, you know, are, are still making music in some way, virtually all of them. And so I, I, I think that um, I don't, precious few of them wanted to become, you know, rich rock stars. They just wanted to figure out a way how to make music and keep on making music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mike Watt, you know, says in the book, um, you know, the secret is to um, not make your tent bigger than your show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, don't, don't live larger than you could afford. Uh, and if your band, you know, can pack out, you know, reliably 250 people a night, um, then, you know, conduct your career as if that were the case don't get a tour bus and you know and blow a lot of money on uh you know drugs and you know fancy equipment and whatever you know live low to the ground so you can keep playing to 250 people a night maybe you know ideally playing to more but budget yourself so you can continue so you can make this sustainable they were figuring how to how to sustain a career and you know uh mike watt is you know has sustained a career he's still making music you know most of the people in the book are are one way or another making music or maybe they moved on to something else but i think very few of them paid a i would say a heavy toll I, maybe you, you could list a couple but none are springing to mind um i i think they played it really really well they figured out how to uh live you know within the bounds of their own you know, popularity and continue to do this as long as they wanted. And even if they're not living comfortable middle-class lives right now, they may just be okay with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like I say, I'm not familiar with the uh, actual financial, you know, well-being of <laughs> most of them, but again, like Lou Barlow, Lou Barlow just put out a really nice record. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he lives at home with his wife and kids and he lives a nice life. I, I, I'm guessing he's not wealthy. But um, he has a nice life. He's, he's still making music and really good music. That's, I think, to, to him, I would think that would be a victory. If you ever do an update to the book, Michael, would you ever do like, where are they now? What are they up to now? As kind of like an afterward? I would be, I would be interested. This is, that's sort of what this question is getting at. I'm like, I wonder, you know, 20 years later, I wonder what the guys from the buttholes are up to you and what... Some of them, obviously, we know some are more high profile and we know what they're up to, but others are more low profile. And you're, I get curious. Right, right. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be interesting. Um, you know, yeah, especially that that particular band. I know uh, Gibby Haynes, you know, <laughs> he, he's, he's probably one of the more uh, comfortable members of the band, but being a, a, having written the songs, co-written the songs. Um, I don't actually, I don't know what their publishing deal is like, but Gibby Haynes just published, or oh, a couple of years ago now, uh, a really great um, uh, young teen novel. 
Huh. I forget what, what the term is. There's a term for it. Why uh, young adults like a YA? Yeah, yeah, yeah YA. Yeah, yeah. yeah he, a YA. It's like it's it's you know it's weird like you'd expect from Gibby Haynes, and it's really <laughs> really good. And oh, um, awesome. you know, so people like that find you know other creative outlets, or you know, I don't know, maybe they um, start working in a bank. I I like I don't know, um, but I would guess that you know all those people uh, are still doing something creative, but we just don't hear about it. And, and they're totally fine with that. The, the, the idea was never to become rich and famous. Again, the idea was just to do something fun and cool as yeah. long as you possibly can. Of the 13 bands you covered, whose music resonates with you the most today? Wow. Real fair question, eh? Yeah. Um, you know, it's so funny. Whose music? I mean, the, the book is called Our Band Could Be Your Life. Uh, the, the, and it's, the book is called that because it, um, those bands maybe provided a paradigm for living your own life, to figuring, figuring out what you want to do and then figuring out a sustainable way of doing it. And uh, the Minutemen influenced me greatly on that. You know, I, I just, I live my life uh, so I can continue uh, writing. And I, I just, I don't know, I, I figured it out. My tent is not too big for my show. Um, yeah. So that was a huge, uh, they've made a huge impact on me. Husker Du with their, their work ethic and their sense of community, huge impact on me. Fugazi, this idea of, you know, you are not what you own and, you know, and think for yourself don't you know just don't do something because um everyone else is you know there's a something it's kind of like a life of i call it the life affirming no or the affirmational no <laughs> where you know you can say no to things and it's not negative it's just you're you're cutting out you know ballast as my again mike watt would say he was very fond of nautical uh imagery you're, uh -huh. you're just getting rid of ballast stuff that's dragging you down that you don't need I'm a big fan of uh, Henry David Thoreau. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he was, uh, I, I, you know, if, if Henry David Thoreau, you know, had a favorite rock band, I think it would be Fugazi. I think <laughs> they really embodied, um, you know, a lot of his ideas. So I, I, in particular, those three bands, in terms of like resonating with my life, you know, um, I, I would name those. The audio version of Our Band Could Be Your Life was released recently. Can you talk a bit about how that came about and how some of the contributors were selected? Well, the, uh, the contributors were all selected by me. Oh, um, nice. And I, I often, I, I was just looking for people who were either fans of the book or fans of that particular band. So for instance, I, somehow I just retained this uh, idea or this fact that um, that Jeff Tweedy from Wilco uh, is a huge Minutemen fan. Hmm. Um, I, actually, I, I think he has a, he has a song about uh, D Boone, right? I reached out to him, and he said yes right away. And he he did a he's one of the best readers in the book. It's really great. A, f a funny thing, uh, years ago, someone sent me a photo of um, Jonathan Franzen doing a um, a video press kit. Uh, for um, Gary Steingart, the uh, novelist. Mm. And it was a still from this video press kit. And it's uh, Jonathan Franzen is playing a, a psychiatrist. He's playing Gary Steingart's uh, psychiatrist. 
And there's a still of him with these books on, on his shelf in the background. And one of them is Our Bank Could Be Your Life. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's and, amazing. Um, yeah. And, um, and I just, again, I kind of retained that. I was thinking, well, who could read the Mission of Burma chapter? And I said, you know, hey, let's just take a shot at, you know, Jonathan Franzen, <laughs> like one of our great novelists. And again, right away. Yeah, that I was that was ridiculous, but he and he did it, and it was, he's also a fantastic reader. And it turned out he actually mentioned Mission of Burma in one of his books, so that was just just dumb luck. That worked out great. Wow. Um, I knew that John Worcester, the, the hilarious, brilliant drummer of Superchunk, uh, was mm-hmm. a replacement fan, so I had to ask him. Dave Longstreth from uh, Dirty Projectors read the Black Flag chapter, and uh, Dirty Projectors had done an entire album uh, uh, based on a. a a black flag album <laughs> oh, so wow. so uh, that was also a, a no-brainer and you know so on and so on i just thought of people who were kind of associated um uh with those bands uh, fred armison the comedian um and you know he's a he's a funny person and b he has uh, some chicago uh roots butthole surfers were really funny and were on a chicago label so yeah <laughs> i asked fred who i've known for a long time and again, he said yes. And, you know, it was just kind of like that. It was just all, they were all really natural connections, you know, to uh, people who I just kind of noted had mentioned the band in question or, or I knew, loved the book. Um, Meryl, from, Meryl uh, Garbus from Toon Yards. That's where we've become dear friends over the years. And um, we first met because she mentioned that that book changed her life. And that is, and that's another a great example of that going back to the beginning of this conversation of inspiration versus influence, mm-hmm. because she was really inspired by the bands in that book. I think at one point she was just thinking, she was so frustrated early on, I think before her first album, right around that time, she was so frustrated with trying to get her career going that she just decided she felt like she had to give up. And she told this to a friend and, and uh, the friend gave her a copy of Our Bank Could Be Your Life. And she, they said, read this. And she read it. And she was so inspired that she started ma- making music again. And Tune Yards, I can tell you, uh, if you've never heard Tune Yards, they s- sounds nothing like uh, Minor Threat <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, or even Sonic Youth. But she read the Sonic Youth chapter because she was so inspired by them. Yeah. She doesn't sound like them. She was inspired by them. Crucial difference. And I'm, I think if I were a band, I would be way more psyched that someone was inspired to make their own kind of music by me rather than just someone imitating my sound. Yeah. How does it feel for you to have inspired her to continue making music? How, like that, that must be very gratifying for you as, a, as an author. Uh, beyond gratifying. I, I, you know, I was verklempt, <laughs> you know, I really, <laughs> she told me that story. I was choked up. I couldn't believe it. Um, Dan Deacon told me an almost identical story. Uh, and I, I bet there are other stories out there like that too. Yeah, it's incredibly moving and it, it's not what I intended. Um, I, I just saw a, a gap, you know, there had, no one had written about these incredibly influential, crucial, interesting, inspiring bands. Mm-hmm. And I thought someone should do something about this. And I decided in true DIY uh, spirit that I should do, do that. And so that's all I did. I just wrote the book and 
you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes, you know, something you do has an effect that you had not envisioned or anticipated or even hoped for. And that's what happened with our bank of beer life. It, it has proved pretty uh, inspiring to a lot of people. People still walk, well, you know, up until recently, up until the past year and a half. Anyway, uh, people would still walk up to me at, at shows and tell me how inspired they were by that book. And these were people who were born, you know, like after the time frame of the book. Yeah. Um, sometimes maybe even after the book <laughs> was published. <laughs> um, and that, that, you know, to say it makes my day is, you know, the understatement of this century. I, I, I always get just a little choked up when anyone says that to me. I, it just blows me away. Even talking about it is kind of wrecks me. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't take any, <laughs> I don't even take any credit for it. I, I'm just blown away that it had that effect on people. I, yeah. I didn't anticipate it. I didn't try to do that. So I'm not, I'm, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to brag about it. I'm just, I'll just happily be blown away by it. <laughs> hey, you were the channel through which these stories were told. That's a, that's that's right. a pretty I'm, I'm a, yeah. amazing thing. I'm just the medium. So. Yep. Yeah. What are you up to these days? Tell me about any projects and things that you have on the go. Well, I uh, I had been meaning to do this forever. And then uh, the pandemic started. And I thought, well, you know, now, if there's ever a time <laughs> to, to do this crackpot idea, now it, now is the time. And the idea is to annotate uh, my first book, which is called Come As You Are, The Story of Nirvana. Mm-hmm which was um, <clears throat> the only book about Nirvana to include interviews with everyone in the band. And that, um, to put it lightly, was a hell of an experience. And there is so much more to that than what wound up in the book. And so I decided to annotate Come As You Are. And originally I just started putting in, you know, behind the scenes stuff, stuff I left out, stuff I want to clarify. Mm-hmm. mistakes. And then I just started explaining cultural context, like uh, what is a pixel vision camera? Uh, <laughs> or, you know, why was it significant that Kurt and Courtney were lying in bed watching a Leaf Garrett movie? How does uh, William S. Burroughs or Brian Geisen come into play with um, Kurt's lyric writing style, et cetera, et cetera. And there are these little mentions in the book that I explode into full-on annotations, these notes and little side essays, little sidebars. And I wrote uh, virtually almost another second book. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, you That's know, not a uh, tiny book either. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a pretty lengthy book. Yeah. There was a lot to say, you know, and, uh, um, and I also wrote about what led up to the book and all my experiences with the band after I finished the book. And I, you know, I toured with them uh, for two one-week stretches on their final U.S. tour, and you know, I had a connection with Kurt. We would talk on the phone, you know, every now and then, and uh, I visit him in Seattle. Like this is all after the book came out, and there's, so there's a lot to say. You know, I wasn't privy to a lot of really scary things. I think a lot of that stuff was kept away from me on purpose, very yeah. determinedly. Um, but uh, I still, you know heard and you know saw experienced a lot of things so i put that in the book as well it was part of it you know is to fill out the book and um you know everything you write there's always something you read back and you think oh gosh i left something out or i could have clarified that or 
oh, there's a whole bunch more to say about this. And I got to indulge that impulse. And so it's all done. I think there's a ton of interesting stuff. I know I deconstructed album art in, in ways I think no one else has. And so right now it's just a matter of um, finding the right publisher and uh, figuring out how to format this on the page, which is a real design challenge. But I have a, a distant cousin named Lawrence Azared, who is a, a Grammy-winning um, art director, huh. who actually, funnily enough, does all of Wilco's stuff ever since Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Oh, wow. That's yeah. wild. He's a, he, I must say, uh, he's a brilliant guy. And our, our great-grandfathers were brothers. <laughs> hey. I, I found out about him by accident. Uh, that's a whole story if you want to hear it but uh but anyway so he's worked out a design i think and that that's going to work but uh the whole idea but the the idea is to how to you know how to publish it and where but i i really think i got a whole ton of really good stuff i'm very excited about this project and hopefully it will see the light of day a huge thanks to our guest michael azarad for taking the time to chat you can keep up with michael on twitter at michael azarad twitter is also where you'll find us at rockrit pod And as always, thank you for listening. There's a lot of things you could be spending your time on, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen. We'll be back with another episode before you know it. So take care and see you next time. 